Welcome to New Books and Fantasy and Adventure, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, we'll be talking with Christopher Brown about Rule of Capture. This is your host, Gabrielle Matthew, author of Girl of Fire and a historical fantasy falcon series. I'll start off with my review of Rule of Capture, which was pitched as a dystopian genre-blending thriller. I do think it has some speculative fiction elements as well. So, Donnie Kimua, a wisecracking lawyer who used to work for the prosecution and has kept his security clearance, believes in the legal system. His work as a defense attorney will change all that. His clients are a new class of criminals, those who dare protest changes in American government, including imposition of martial law in certain areas and the detainment of citizens without legal reasons. To protect his new client, Shalina Rocaforte, a young journalist from the fate of his previous one who just received the death penalty, Donnie tries the patience of his former associates and leans heavily on his prior friendships. Soon he realizes private interests allied with influential politicians have a good reason to want Selena locked up out of sight. Selena's video evidence, if made public, will interfere with their secret plan to use condemned land for some lucrative business plans. A crash course in a law, as well as a darkly humorous thriller, Christopher Brown's Rule of Capture should make you think hard about the importance of law and its application for citizens. Now a little about Christopher Brown. His debut novel, Tropic of Kansas, was a finalist for the John W. Campbell Award for Best Science Fiction Novel of the Year. Rule of Capture is set in the same world. Christopher has taken two companies public, restored a small prairie, worked on two Supreme Court confirmations, rehabilitated a brownfield, reported from Central American war zones, washed airplanes, co-hosted a punk radio talk show, built an eco-bunker, worked day labor, negotiated hundreds of technology deals, protected government whistleblowers, investigated fraud, raised venture capital, explored a lot of secret woodlands, raised an amazing kid, and trained a few dogs. And now he's going to read for our show. One of my favorite scenes, and as it turns out, his too. They'd had a regular memorial for Judge Elwood earlier that week, and the church's widow chose. But the real funeral was that night at midnight, on a closed-off overpass west of downtown, part of one of the private freeways reserved for the wealthy elite. More than a hundred friends gathered, more men than women, with their best old cars lined up in long rows, all tuned to the same private FM feed blasting border metal at the city below, while the judge's body lay there atop the hood of his 1989 Cadillac Conquistador, which in turn had been raised on a pyre of rebar and mesquite doused with high-octane fuel drained from the tank of the car. The boys had gotten good at building those pyres in a way that you could drive the preferred chair to the deceased right up there at the beginning of the fest, and not need a crane or a bunch of floor jacks. The judge was dressed in a chalk-striped charcoal flannel suit with a green foulard tie, white handkerchief, and the snake boots he wore for the hunt. His party lapel pin glistened like black gold, reflecting the moonlight. His favorite Ruger was holstered right there in the waistband of his suit pants behind the sterling belt buckle monogrammed with an etching of an eagle clutching a rat in its talons. The nine-inch knife with its hand-carved handle hung from the belt in its handsome Brooks Brothers scabbard, and folded into his arms was the Remington double-barreled 12-gauge with the inlaid silver image of Robert McAlpin Williamson, the Republic of Texas-era judge known as Three-Legged Willie for his primitive prosthesis, and for the Bowie knife he always wore under his judicial robes. The judge's friends lined up to pay their respects, leaving gifts with him to take off to the beyond. Cactus flowers, black and gold-jacketed bullets and shells, flasks of fine tequila and whiskey, cigars, antlers, and condoms. People talked and told stories about him, and then they turned off the music 
and his wife walked up with her bold blonde hair done up in a vintage coif with a fresh streak of silver through the bangs that matched the platinum sequence of her dress. She gave a talk about what her husband stood for and what he believed the future would be if they continued the fight to which he had committed his life, a patriotism made from blood and dirt in the melding of the Anglo and Spanish traditions of law, property, and the enjoyment of the life of born leaders. Then the mistress got her turn, talking about some of the things he liked to do for fun, including an anecdote about the trip they had taken after the last diagnosis had come in, which involved three extramarital couples on a private jet loaded with spirits and firearms and a big tent you could put up in the desert after you had landed. His daughter talked about his most important decisions, listing some of the most dangerous enemies of the state he had incarcerated. And then they each kissed him in turn, intense goodbye kisses to warm dead flesh. They stood together after that, arms locked, and sang the song, a cappella, so crisp and clear that it carried far from that vaulted freeway, even though you could hear the tremors of loss in their corral. When they were done, the men took the torches they had been holding and put them to the pyre, as the feed came back on with Judgment Day, the last instrumental duel between Page and Gibbons before they went their separate ways. Somehow the flames engulfed the caddy, just at the part where the drums and guitar find their shared harmony, and then the bass joins in, and then the screaming wails, the unofficial anthem of twenty years of flag-draped victory celebrations and you could almost believe in the mythic past these people accepted as true heritage. So thanks for the reading, Christopher. That was great. And uh, let's go in and uh, start some questions. My first question... Thanks for having me. (laughs) You're welcome. My first question to you is that it's common advice for writers to write about something which makes them passionate. You obviously have strong feelings about the injustice of our legal system, though you're not a criminal lawyer. Can you tell our readers how working on a grand jury galvanized you? Yeah, I'd be, I'd be delighted to. And it's a, that's an insightful question. You know, one of the things that was that struck me when uh, my editor sent this out to get blurbs from uh, authors of legal thrillers, which is not a, a community of writers that I... I uh, personally have known very well. And a lot of the reactions that he got from people were like, wow, this is so emotional for a, a legal thriller, for a lawyer story, which maybe isn't often the case. I mean, I read a bunch of them and I suppose there's something to that. And there is a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of a feeling. There's a strong sense of injustice that pervades this book. And it was very much inspired by. Uh, real experiences, um, in particular, when I was working on Tropic of Kansas, uh, uh, which uh, my book that came out in 2017, but I was really working on it in sort of 2012 through 2014. And in 2013, I spent the second half of the year serving as a, a, a member of a grand jury here in the state criminal courts in Austin, Texas, where I live. And, you know, a grand jury is different than a trial jury in the American system. Uh, it's a panel of 12 members of the community, which in this case included a few lawyers uh, as well as uh, lay persons uh, who are uh, uh, serve the role of hearing all of the uh, felony indictments that the county prosecutors propose to have issued. And so would you basically you sit there for two or three days a week or half days and uh, the prosecutors come in and they go through all of these reports of arrests for every manner of crime from sort of petty theft to uh, all kinds of horrific assaults. And uh, we never got any homicides or anything like that, but some uh, gun violence and uh, a lot of, uh, you know, uh, uh, domestic assault cases and, uh, you know, a kind of a, an intense window into the life of the community and a ton of uh, drug cases. And, um, and what really struck me is, you know, um, sitting there uh, every day hearing all of these cases was to see just how much uh, 
in the American system, access to justice is allocated based on money, class, and race. And you could really see it in terms of the the, the, the cases that came before the grand jury, uh, uh, including a lot of cases where you could tell, one, that the, the way in which the laws were being enforced, the sort of the, the, the decisions about what neighborhoods to patrol, what mm-hmm. kinds of people to pull over, what kinds of circumstances to pull people over in. You know, there was one where it was a kid uh, who got stopped by a police officer for walking down the wrong side of the street mm-hmm. in accordance with, you know, a municipal ordinance that says if you are a pedestrian and there is no sidewalk. And of course, in a lot of the lower income neighborhoods in, in Austin, there are no sidewalks. Uh, if you, you, know, you have to walk down, a, a, you know, a certain part of the right of way. And then you get stopped and frisked and, you know, you have some small quantity of uh, some, you know, scheduled narcotic or whatever. And then you're in the cage and in the system and just being part of that uh, system uh, where, you know, you might have a chance to bounce some obviously uh, some some cases that didn't meet the standard. But the standard of uh, probable cause is pretty low. And um it really, I don't know, it really energized me to um, to try to engage more with uh, that sort of everyday dystopia that's already mm-hmm. there in the society we live in, depending on the vantage point from which you experience it. And, uh, and I, uh, you know, and it's not this kind of thing that you can easily as a lawyer sort of jump into on a, on a ad hoc basis. And, uh, and it ended up bleeding into my work. And, and in fact, I had a, I had a scene I was working on in Tropic of Kansas where one of the characters had been locked up by the dystopian authorities. And uh, I was trying to figure out what uh, how to get them out. I had sort of already exhausted the number of plausible escapes you could have in, a, in one story. And uh, and I sort of was feeling very stuck and I took a coffee break. And I remember I stopped at this coffee shop by the side of the road and I look up as I'm walking back out to my car and here's this billboard. Uh, for this very Austin uh, uh, kind of attorney whose tagline is the, the lawyer who rocks. <laughs> and I had that idea of, oh, there's what I'll do is I will we'll, we'll imagine, you know, what would be the, what would, what, what would the billboard lawyer be like in a dystopian and a sort of more authentically dystopian USA? And that grew out of this current project we'll capture. Well, to move on uh, to something different just for a minute, uh, that's your author website. It displays a photo of a resting car being swallowed by a swamp while a man walks his dog in the background. The juxtaposition of nature with man-made landscapes is also a recurring theme in your book. As wilderness areas become fewer and fewer and man-made areas fall into decay because of the lack of infrastructure and climate change, Landscapes become a jumbled mix of the hardy remaining species and the broken artifacts of humans. Though you're not a writer who paints with words in general, those specific images have a haunting visual to them. In your novel, Selena, a young photographer and journalist, works with these images. And I I looked it up and... I think this type of work has a name now. It's called ruin porn or ruin photography. I kind of like ruin porn. And it refers yeah. <laughs> it refers specifically to the capture of urban decay and decline in a post-industrial zones <laughs> of the world. So I had two questions about that. First, if Selena's landscape photography has a political resonance, in your view, and then I also wondered if there had been any visual artists whose work inspired you and your perception of the world. Yeah, well, it's also this is another really insightful question. I mean, yeah, I'm so fascinated by the. Uh, uh, I've always been fascinated by that sort of ruin porn, as you call it, um, that sort of Tarkovsky lens on the world around you. Um, uh, of sort of seeing, yeah, seeing the the ruins of the immediate past that are sort of uh, uh, coming into existence before our eyes, uh, you know, the kind of weird romance of mm-hmm. 
you know, something like an abandoned shopping mall or, uh, uh, yeah, or, uh, an old, you know, piece of Detroit iron, you know, classic car sort of melting back into the swamp. Um, I love it so much that I chose to live in a place like that. My, my, uh, family and I, we built our house here in, uh, in a kind of industrial edgeland in East Austin where we had to, to build the house. We had to uh, remove the abandoned, um, uh, petroleum pipeline that was mm. sort of bisected, bisected the lot. And they even had like, Right where our like front steps are now used to be this like valve box that was to access the pipeline, but it was this big like kind of rusting steel vault in the middle of the earth mm-hmm. that had a big like wheel to open it to open the hatch, kind of like you'd see on a ship, but down into the earth, a very uh, kind of weirdly wondrous thing. But um, you, you know, and as I think about, it, I think that um, there's a there's a, there's a way in which the, the almost like the, the post-apocalyptic aesthetic uh, has a kind of aspirational quality to it that I don't think we ever really examine. You know, the idea of, especially if you're interested in sort of finding your way back to uh, or forward to a, a kind of a, a, a greener way of mm-hmm. living. Mm-hmm. Finding your way closer to nature, uh, you know, while living in the city, um, uh, or of just imagining that the, you know, that some of the things about the, the sort of the hubris of human civilization that might uh, prove a little bit tiresome or a little bit out of balance, uh, the idea that they're sort of ephemeral and that, uh, uh, you know, kind of planetary nature has a kind of longer life than that and so um and so if shalina's photography in the book which is kind of my effort to bring that in there and i i do try to i mean i'm interested in that uh you know a kind of a a lyrical access point into the romance and the beauty of that and a story like this that uh uh you know has a certain kind of uh plotted propulsiveness um there's less room for uh meditative lyricism but selena here she provides an opportunity to do that because she at the beginning i mean she she's engaged in a very intense struggle one that's profoundly political uh but uh her politics especially at the outset are kind of a longer view politics because she's really interested in dealing with kinds of deeper injustices like the you know the kind of injustice of the vanquishing of the american continent by uh by european settlement and um and the politics that she's trying to bite into is about uh you know how do you kind of reprogram that and she's young and uh maybe a little bit utopian in her outlook uh and uh the uh you know those political aspirations may or may not be particularly realistic, uh, but they're powerful ones, and they're ones that are, you know, to a, a significant extent articulating some of my own thoughts on the matters. Um, and in terms of the, you know, the question you posed about visual artists, uh, I mean, I think it does, these things are, are, are interconnected in a way. And I, I have, a, I kind of come from a family of, artists and painters, really. I mean, I have, uh, 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 my great grandfather was a German romantic painter, uh, of, uh, who had been you know, some success, uh, before World War II in that, uh, sort of school. And, uh, and, uh, uh my brother, uh, Alex Brown, to him, this book is dedicated, who sadly passed away just, uh, just after I had turned the revised manuscript in at the beginning of the year this year. Uh, he was a painter, uh, and, uh, and kind of, of, a of a similar school and maybe taking that strain of the kind of the romantic eye, the, you know, that sort of, even that sort of, I don't know, that kind of Casper David Friedrich, you know, romantic eye, uh, uh, or the kind of the more contemporary abstracted way of doing that you, that you see in the work of a painter like Gerhard Richter, 
another German painter. And uh, in seeing uh, the romance and the ruin of the world around us or the the romance uh, in the... Um, the kind of the dark romance in the in the sort of technophiliac eye that you see uh lurking in kind of modern anglo american science fiction and uh something that I think you know writers like j g Ballard did a great job of kind of wrestling with but in my case, I'm trying to dig in a little bit more precisely to uh the nexus of that sort of uh ruin porn uh uh, perspective and uh, and kind of green themes and a kind of uh, deep ecology uh, and in this book trying to do, do, do all that to the framework of what's basically a legal thriller which mm-hmm. is a tricky undertaking but if you kind of dig into the the ways in which the law articulates uh, and reflects that relationship with nature and relationship with the built environment and with the technological environment, I think it's, I don't know, it's sort of interesting, a kind of fresh way to interrogate that. Well, your publisher did pitch this as a genre-bending work. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, tell us what the title, Rule of Capture, refers to. Yeah, well, then that's kind of, yeah, germane to, I mean, kind of just what I was talking about in one way. But, um, uh, at its most basic, rule of capture is a legal doctrine uh, that exists uh, really in both. Um, I mean, in the Texas context, it comes. It, it sort of comes from the, the the Texas variant of this legal doctrine of the rule of capture comes from a mix of both the Anglo-American common law doctrines of property law and and Spanish doctrines. So, the basic idea. Of the rule of capture in the sort of property law or uh, real estate law or natural resources law is that um, uh, sort of rights in real property are kind of kind of uh, passed all the way through the bounds of the property vertically downward into the you know theoretically I suppose to the center of the earth and that if you drill a hole in you know your yard. And anything you can extract through that hole, even if it may include, say, pockets of water or, uh, you know, fossil fuels that may be being sucked out of an adjacent piece of property, uh, that that's yours. It's a kind of a finder's keeper's uh, rule um, uh, for how to divvy up rights and the things that we find uh, in the natural environment around us. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has, you know, a lot of variants that, that may or may not have that exact uh, uh, name, uh, depending on the body of law you're looking at. But, you know, the basic idea that literally um, we make the things we find in nature our own property in which we have exclusive rights by capturing them or killing them. Uh, I talk in the book about this is this kind of a, the, 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 the protagonist sort of riffs on what's basically one of the first classes that everyone reads in law school, which is a class out of New York state called Pearson V post in which a, um, uh, a, uh, there's a, a rich guy chasing a fox across sort of waste and uninhabited land, also known as the commons. And, um, and uh, just as he's about to capture the fox, another, uh, local, uh, uh, landowner kind of kills it before he can get to it, even after he's, uh, uh, sort of named it. And, um, and the case is about, you know, who, who owned the fox, uh, and putting aside the question of like, why were two guys suing each other over who had rights in this fox and what was the sort of the bigger property fight behind that? Um, the very ideas of like that um, there are exclusively human rights in other living beings, and you know that like, well, wait a minute, what about the fox? Right? Does the fox have any rights? And, Does it belong uh, you know, to itself? <laughs> yeah, and it supposedly, you know, and they were out on the, you know, on 
land held in common by the community. And like, mm-hmm. well, wait, how did the, the two rich guys get to fight over the, uh, you know, the resources that are left there? And, um, and so rule of capture is, you know, it's digging into all of that, uh, sort of, I don't know, on the one level sort of heady theory, but also the way, as a way, as a sort of access point to like talk about, um, how did we get into this profound ecological mess? And uh, are there ways that we can hack uh, the system of property rights or at least be more thoughtful about it uh, in a way that also um, uh, might help us uh, come up with a, a better way to uh, uh, allocate those kinds of resources or a better way to think about the relationships we have with the natural environment around us, uh, uh, at least sort of prospectively as we kind of think about how to try to live a balanced, uh, maintain a balanced uh, uh, human ecology on an increasingly strained planet. And it's also about, you know, uh, it's a kind of a thriller title, and it's about how we capture each other and take things from each other and take land from each other and take liberty from each other. Um, And so, you know, trying to trying to in some ways encode the whole story in in a kind of cryptic title. Mm-hmm. Well, lawyer Donnie Kimo, am I saying his name right? Kimoe? Yeah. 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 Oh. Uh, oh. Donnie. We'll just call him Donnie. Donnie. Just call him <laughs> Donnie. I like that. Yeah. So he comes up with this idea, too, whose property rights, land rights, and he uses that idea to challenge the entire concept of ownership. And thus, he's able to negotiate with the government on behalf of his clients, or at least try to negotiate. We don't want to give away too much. And indeed, from the history of the Wampanoags and the founding pilgrims, I was reading about this in the New Yorker, gave rise to Thanksgiving holiday, but it Mm -hmm. actually led to the enslavement of the Wampanoags and the seizure of their lands. On to the settlement of the USA with the resulting displacement of indigenous people. Land has belonged to the victor, as you point out. If Donnie finds this legal magic bullet to challenge exploitative practices, why isn't anyone trying that right now? Well, they actually are. I mean, there are people, you know, pressing for that. I mean, uh, uh, the problem is that, um, uh, they're the the, the uh, they're trying to do that in U.S. federal courts, in which all of these early cases from the you know pre-Civil War period uh, of the you know kind of the early founding of the Republic and especially the initial westward settlement of the continent, in which people started you know starting in the in the Jacksonian era with the Trail of Tears and the mm-hmm. expulsion of the uh, Cherokee and other uh, indigenous peoples from uh, the Carolinas and so on. Um, uh, those cases are all still good law under U.S. law. And in the book, the idea is that in this sort of uh, altered uh, uh, version of the reality in which the U.S. has been um, uh, kind of checked by emerging international authorities mm-hmm. through a, a, a variety of circumstances, that uh, our 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 protagonist Danny, uh, the sneaky lawyer, uh, can try to appeal to international bodies to say, "Well, this can't be good law, right? How is this? How does this pass muster uh, as a matter of uh, sort of international right?" Uh, and also in the world of the book, just imagining a a, a future in which, I mean. I think one could imagine that in a society that already paid reparations to uh, uh, descendants of the Japanese Americans who were interned uh, mm-hmm. during World War II in an internment that was held to be constitutional at the time, uh, uh, and in which we're now, you know, people are starting to have serious conversations uh, provoked in particular by Ta-Nehisi Coates's um, uh, essay in the Atlantic a few years ago about the idea of reparations for slavery. Um, you could imagine a circumstance in which people would try to have some kind of a more radical reckoning uh, with the absence of any true 
you know, kind of defensible, rationally defensible legal right underlying the settlement of the contract, right? And, uh, but as it stands now, there are these cases like the most seminal one is probably, uh, there's a case called Johnson versus McIntosh that was decided in like 1933 or something like that. Uh, and the opinion is by Chief Justice Marshall, who's kind of the famous, you know, original Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, kind mm-hmm. of the poor father of American jurisprudence that's taught to be venerated in most law schools. And um, in that case, he basically involved, uh, there were some developers, essentially, you know, 18th century, 19th century, early 19th century developers who had bought um from the people that had occupied, from the indigenous people who had occupied the land for many generations, basically substantially, been close to half the real estate of what currently constitutes the states of Indiana and Illinois. And the question was like, well, who owns who owns that land? The people who bought it from the Native Americans or the people who bought it from the United States government that had kind of subsequently conquered the land after they did that deal? And uh, in the opinion, Justice Marshall goes off in this sort of elegiac lament for what has happened to the indigenous peoples. And this is just as, like, Andrew Jackson is beginning his kind of campaign of extermination. Mm-hmm. And in Texas, and in Texas, you had, you know, a series of governors trying to do the same thing pretty successfully in the Texas context, sadly. And... um he says, yeah, well, this is and basically says, yeah, I know it really sucks. But unfortunately, uh, you know, quote, the conquest gives a title which the courts of the conqueror cannot deny. That sort of the kind of an ultimate like bald expression that, you know, underlying the law is not reason, but brute force. Right. Uh, right. Uh, under arms. And um, and so. Um, uh that, you know, why aren't people, you know, making those arguments today? I mean, in the end, you always kind of end up at the same point, even if, I mean, I suppose even if you dug into, you know, European history, I mean, this is a young, much younger polity over here, right? But um, I think that um, uh, very often, if you dig into the roots of any doctrine of law, it's ultimately grounded in some exercise of raw power by elites or by a by you know dominant members of a society uh in a way that might have been dressed up uh uh with a penumbra of reason or you know reference to so-called natural law but you know often i think uh doesn't hold up to any kind of serious uh reason scrutiny mm-hmm well, you also state that you try to ground your science fiction in the material of the observed world. You've been giving us a lot of uh, legal examples uh, to show us how your work actually relates to the body of law that's in existence. But how about some other current situations that you feel could tie into your new novel? I mean, Rule of Capture, in a way, is, is kind of a story about gentrification. And, uh, maybe kind of gentrification on steroids, but, mm-hmm. um, uh, and, uh, and informed by, uh, I know you, you used to live in Austin, Texas, where I live now. And, uh, uh, mm-hmm. I, uh, in the 20 years I've been here, um, uh, and after having seen the same kind of stuff go on in New York, where my brother lived for many years, um, I've seen, uh, 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 the extent to which um, there are much deeper forces at work behind uh, these gentrification battles. And I live in a neighborhood uh, uh, in which, um, you know, the the kind of the everyday gentrification fights, which at one level are just about kind of, you know, there's like a wave of, you know, Anglo hipsters who moves into a lower income neighborhood and then they're, and then they start doing, you know, sort of, things that are deemed cool and artisanal by uh, the tastes of that sort of class of people. Uh, And then, you know, capital kind of and real estate capital come in behind them and turn that into kind of, you know, commodified brands and, uh, and much more expensive real estate and the property taxes get driven way up. And uh, the, you know, people who've been here for multiple generations are kind of pushed out by economic forces. Um, 
But in like in Austin, that's like taking place on what's already manifestly colonized space. And uh, uh, in the neighborhood uh, I live, which is historically predominantly Mexican American, um, you know, as I've kind of helped uh, some of my neighbors out in some of these fights, which started with me being just involved in sort of urban wilderness conservation fights and urban ecology fights, but sort of got me involved in, in other kinds of development battles, um, kind of being able to use my skills as a lawyer and sort of background in politics to kind of help out with some of that. You know, I, I became much more aware of the extent to which a lot of my neighbors that I was sort of taught to think of as Mexican-American or people who self-identify as indigenous, <laughs> that like these gentrification battles that are sort of going on that are kind of presented on one level are really like the direct continuation of what I was just talking about mm-hmm. with the stuff that goes back to the settling of the continent. And it's happening in a more kind of quotidian way, right? Uh, and in a less like overtly violent way. But it's, it's, it really is, uh, you know, part of this continuous history. And, um, and, uh, uh, and so in a lot of respects, this book is trying to use the speculative fictional prism of kind of creating a mirror version of the world, a kind of a dark funhouse mirror version of the world we live in to try to show some of that in a way that uh, the idea is, you know, that people will be kind of caught up in the story and, and, uh, 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 and then when they leave it sort of uh, be left with some kind of thoughts and perspectives that'll, uh, cause them to maybe, uh, or aid them maybe to see uh, the world around them in a different light. So that would be, you know, uh, one particular example. You know, and then the other thing is it's trying to wrestle with like something that is an issue I think a lot about even since I finished the book, just kind of following our daily news here about, um, uh, the extent to which, um, uh, like failures of ethical norms really characterize contemporary American life. And maybe that's true kind of around uh, uh, the world in a way around the so-called, you know, industrialized or developed world. Or, um, uh, but, um, and in particular in the context of just looking at lawyers and um, uh, rule of capture and the book that preceded it, Traffic of Kansas, which are sort of nominally set in the same world. They're both set in a world in which uh, they're like post 9-11 worlds, taking mm-hmm. place in a world in which 9-11 didn't happen. Um, but, uh, you know, wrestling with, you know, how is it that uh, the lawyers we count on to be the ones who tell us this is what the law is end up uh, much more often uh, uh, when they should be kind of holding the line on uh, uh, reminding people that these are the kinds of rules we've agreed on on bending the rules and figuring out ways to uh, uh, basically use their skills as lawyers to facilitate the failure of law uh, as when, you know, lawyers write memos saying torture isn't torture mm-hmm. uh, or as when, uh, you know, lawyers become instruments of, uh, as I think we're seeing in the kind of the current situation sort of on both sides and just, um, uh, you know, um, <laughs> The, uh, the the daily litigation of constitutional crisis across our media feeds in ways that are really uh, tend to be kind of uh, unburdened by grounding and uh, kind of what I think are basic, you know, uh, ethical principles that lawyers should adhere to. So trying to, you know, dig into that stuff, but in a way that tells a, a fun story. Well, I also noticed one difference. I'm a U.S. citizen who lives abroad, and uh, it's my perception that currently the U.S. is eager to retain people it's already granted citizenship to, as all citizens abroad must continue to file U.S. income tax statements, as well as to provide exhaustive bank statements to the U.S. Treasury regardless of your intent to continue to reside in another country. In fact, I found out that an application to renounce U.S. citizenship costs several thousand dollars to file, and there's a chance it could be rejected, and you wouldn't get your filing fee refunded. (laughs) It's kind of a fraught situation. 
There is even a Facebook support group for people who would like to opt out of U.S. citizenship. Uh, one famous expat that's held up as an example was singer Tina Turner, who has become a permanent resident of Switzerland and is enjoying life on the so-called Gold Coast of Lake Zurich. So I think the situation has changed somewhat in your dystopian future. Uh, people are renouncing their passports and people are having their citizenship revoked. What happens to those people? Yeah, well, it's, um, it's a really interesting perspective you bring to bear on this. And, um, and, 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 and I'm sure it's true. I love the idea of like Tina Turner as like a, now I want to write a story in which like Tina Turner or some Tina Turner analog is like the, the force of like political dissent. Um, very, very beyond Thunderdome meets, uh, meets 1984 or something. The, um, uh, but you know, and, and I'm sure you're right that, um, especially if you ask the IRS, you know, they don't want, they, no, no, no government entity likes to give up its tax base, mm-hmm. but, um, but I think there's a long history in the U.S. of uh, not wanting certain kinds of citizens, or you know, there's a there there's um, ideology and racism that I think pervades ideas of American identity uh, that uh, tend to recur generationally in our politics. Um, you talked earlier about a story you had read in the New Yorker recently about uh, Thanksgiving and. Uh, there was an excellent story in the New Yorker just a couple of weeks ago about uh, the, the the so-called Palmer Raids of 1919, 100 years ago this year, in which, um, you know, at the peak of the Red Scare, right mm-hmm. after World War One, right after the Russian Revolution, uh, and uh, uh, during the administration of Woodrow Wilson, that um, uh, there was there were uh, a huge number of uh, people who were citizens who were, who or who had been, you know, who were had previously been considered lawful immigrants to the U.S. from Europe, who were deported over their politics, oh, okay. and including including people like you know Emma Goldman, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of you know famous radicals, and um, uh, and there were pretty you know pretty vicious like political persecutions that went on at that time. And um, uh, and they deported them right to Ellis Island. That kind of talk about an inversion of the narrative. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, and a lot of those laws from that period and then from sort of throughout the Cold War period are still on the books. And um, and when I set out to write Rule of Capture, I was just kind of playing with that idea of like, you know, what if that sort of step was revised? Um, and um, and um uh, and then, you know, as I was working on the book, uh, to my editor's chagrin, who frequently accuses me of like inventing these things and causing them to happen by the very fact of their <laughs> imagination, we had, uh, they started, there started being stories about uh, all these efforts to denaturalize, as the, as the term that, that they use for that, where, you know, if you're a naturalized citizen, to denaturalize you and take your uh, citizenship away. Um, of people, especially along the Texas-Mexico border, uh, and uh, and apparently there were, there were a bunch of instances in which there were allegations that uh, people had been born in, say, you know, um, Matamoros or Nuevo Reno or one of these, you know, the, the other side of one of these border towns that are kind of these, you know, conjoined communities that exist on both sides of the border, and uh, and that. People had been there had been people who don't like fake birth certificates saying you 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 were actually born in a hospital in Nuevo Laredo, uh, and uh, they got a birth certificate for you from Laredo. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's going on uh, for real. And um, uh, but in the end, in the book, you know, it's just a, to me, it's a way of trying to. Um, I try to take it to another level of imagining a circumstance in which you know you could be a native-born citizen and have your citizenship removed and. And again, there are laws in the book to that effect. There is, you know, there are statutes on the books in which, you know, you, you renounce your citizenship uh, uh, by certain acts. And uh, but it's not implausible to me that we could have another circumstance in which um, uh, in which 
citizenship is sort of attacked in that way. And I think it's a it's a useful way to kind of explore these issues around, you know, what makes somebody an American. Uh, and uh, and in the context of the book, to really get to your question, uh, there are young people who are like rejecting the idea of nation states as being the basis of identity. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, people who are part of a generation inheriting a, 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 a a kind of a, an ecologically bereft and exhausted uh, planet and who believe that, um, you know, that people need to be started thinking differently about uh, how they relate to the land and to the environment and getting beyond this idea of uh, these kind of particularly territorial uh, inheritances. And so what happens to them is if they, uh, is they, uh, they're like burning their passports and saying, I don't want to be an American. I don't want to be in anything. I want to just be free uh, to go where I want and to be part of the planet. Uh, this is my kind of natural heritage. And uh, so they become like stateless people as a consequence. And the government is prosecuting them uh, with denaturalization, the stripping of citizenship as a sort of a remedy for a kind of treason that's embodied in that, in that act. And, uh, where you go when you don't have a passport uh, as a denaturalized American is kind of one of the things that is revealed in the course of the book. But it's it's uh, it's not it's a not good a, place. It's, <laughs> no, it's not a good place. Well, in previous interviews, you've referred to the idea of the trickster lawyer who tries to defend his client by resorting to questionable or illegal tactics. And Donnie is such a lawyer, even if he is driven by a good cause. He is committed to his clients. He's outraged at their treatment. On the other hand, he does seem to be struggling. His relationship with his lover, a local professor, is pretty tepid most of the time. He can't even pay his paralegal, and he staves off sleep by using drugs is Donnie a heroic figure? I mean, he's kind of a heroic loser of the <laughs> sort. Um, and, uh, you know, so many. So when I decided to do this book, uh, and I'm a lawyer who's also a writer, I, but I had never really, I had written some, some stories with, you know, characters who were lawyers, but nothing that was this much about lawyering as a kind of central part of the story and, and certainly I'd never had written like what, what could qualify as a legal thriller before. I hadn't read that widely in the field and so I kind of went and dove back into it and and you know and, and and as I was reminded when I did so I mean uh, stories of lawyers especially in American culture are full of these sort of kind of morally uh, uh, superior paladins who are always defending innocent people and uh, champions of the underdog speaking truth to power. And, and, you know, I don't really believe in the existence of that lawyer or they do exist, but they're usually not doing it in a glamorous way. They're deep in a system in which um, the whole thing is stacked against them and they're tired and they're burnt out. And, uh, the really smart and, uh, you know, the kind of the, uh, uh, the Gregory Peck looking lawyers or the, uh, Christine Baranski looking lawyers usually are working in the big law firms. Uh, the people who have all of that kind of polish and pizzazz to mm-hmm. sort of, uh, you know, the kind of who look like the, the, uh, uh, uh alphas of the, of the pack. Uh, but the people who are doing the kind of the work of defending the people and the bowels of the system usually are kind of a little scruffier, as it were. They're usually not the people who graduated at the top of their class. They're usually not the people who went to Harvard or Yale or Stanford. Um, and um, uh, and they're often, you know, kind of screw ups. And it was and I wanted to so I wanted to play with that idea. And there's a certain charm to that archetype. We see it uh, uh, elsewhere. In Donnie's case, you know, uh, we're, we're, you know, in a Perry Mason novel or in most of the other sort of stories of criminal defense lawyers that are within the paradigm, the, the clients are innocent. 
and the lawyer is there to show that they're innocent uh, uh, when the, you know, facts and the odds seem stacked against them. In real life, in the criminal law, the clients are usually guilty. It's mm-hmm. the laws that are unjust, sort of dovetailing back to what we talked about with your first question about, like, my experience on the grand jury. It's like, you see, like, yeah, sure, you know, that thing that cat kid had in the bag in his pants when he was walking down the wrong side of the street is illegal, but so is what that kid has in his BMW tooling around West Austin, and it's mm-hmm. just like the enforcement of the laws is inequitable, and the decision of what's really criminal and what we should spend our time and resources, you know, getting after is uh, you could at least argue about. Uh, and so Danny Kimo is a lawyer for whom all of his clients are guilty, but it's the laws that are unjust. But the laws in his world are like more manifestly unjust, right? Right. And so, uh, yeah, and so he's sort of heroic in that way. And he's heroic in his capacity to kind of like get his shit together, pardon my French, enough <laughs> to uh, pull a case together. Because in the end, he's like a morally grounded person in terms of, you know, actually caring about uh, doing the right thing, but he's been in, uh, operating in this, uh, kind of, uh, you know, fallen dystopian milieu for so long that he's kind of a little lost at the outset. And so over the course of the story, he goes from a, being, uh, in a lawyer who's part of the system to being a lawyer who kind of fights, uh, within the system on behalf of its victims, right? Mm-hmm. But still kind of serving the system to one who is like really fighting the system and becoming kind of like the archetype of like the radical lawyer in the mode of, you know, William Kunstler or Jacques Berger or somebody like that. And, and so in that respect, yeah, he's heroic and, uh, uh, but hopefully in a kind of plausible way. Well, you mentioned new laws uh, that are more obviously unjust and one incident that's often referred to, in the novel is uh, the Burn Barnes incident, which becomes a basis for a series of new laws. So tell us a little bit about the Burn Barnes, what laws come out of it, and how the public feels about those laws. Yeah, I mean, the Burn Barnes laws in the book are basically restrictions on free speech that come about because of uh, acts of protest uh, that result in death to <laughs> protesters or to people trying to uh, manage the protesters to law enforcement and so on. And, um, and it's, you know, playing with ideas around kind of real law and free speech and the idea, you know, the, the idea that uh, uh, at some point where speech uh, 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 is enough to provoke danger and a risk of injury that it's constitutionally amenable to uh, capable of being restricted um, and even restricted on a prior restraint basis. And so, uh, and in the, so in the book, there's been the Burn Barnes cases, like where some, you know, lawyer is like, uh, as an act of protest has self immolated in front of the Supreme Court and, uh, taken a couple of, uh, police officers with him. But it's emblematic of a few other incidents that have, have taken place like that in a society that's less like an America that's kind of having its, uh, moments that look a lot like contemporary Hong Kong, if you will. And, you know, and, and underlying that premise is a notion I have that, that I think, you know, most Americans are, um, tend to be kind of dismissive of protesters of protest of like, uh, and pretty tolerant of like, uh, restrictions on that kind of activity that to me it's like totally plausible that you could uh, if there were a bunch of uh, uh, protesters taking the streets and kind of interrupting commerce or interrupting the flow of traffic that for you know most people they'd just be they'd be as interested in getting those people to get out of the way and you know lock them up so I can get to my meeting or whatever like the yellow um, vests in Paris yeah uh-huh. I mean I, I yeah, exactly. I mean, very similar. And I think, um, uh, yeah, I just don't think most people, it's like, 
I think there's a line in the book where Donnie remarks that, you know, most Americans hated protesters unless they were the protesters. Mm-hmm. I was thinking of that too. Yeah. And I, I think, I don't know. I, that's kind of how I feel about it. I think that's how people are. And, uh, so sort of playing with that idea in a way that allows for the news environment, the information environment and in the story to be really like neutered. Uh, so that it's very hard to get the word out about bad stuff that's happening that the government's doing or that, uh, private parties are doing that mm-hmm. in the public, in the public realm. Uh, and, uh, and that our protagonist has to, and, and his clients have to kind of fight, uh, uh, as sort of among the odds that are stacked against them. Well, one thing that is new in this alternate, uh, universe that you've created, is China, which seems to be okay, or I I know this novel focuses mostly on the U.S., but uh, there are some references to China. Currently, China has a repressive government and is struggling with pollution due to rapid unchecked growth. It sounds different in the future. Uh, China plays a peripheral role in the unfolding of the events in Houston, where Donnie's working, but their earlier victory over the U.S. in the space war and the subsequent ban on U.S. space exploration is a key event that leads to uh, monumental things happening in the novel. Donnie has visited China-owned Hawaii, and he describes it as a nicer world than the one he lives in, one in which leadership is community-based. So what do you see this new China being like? Well, the idea in the story, you know, and, and part of it is um, I wanted to create a kind of American Weimar, a period in which the U.S. is enduring a kind of a national humiliation and mm-hmm. subjugation, similar to what the Germans suffered after World War One. Uh, there are lots of other examples like that in history of occupied societies or societies that have lost conflict. So the idea in the book is that there's been a conflict with China. A kind of a brief but really uh, intense one uh, that has uh, broken the American model. And so the China of the book is um, not too uh, uh, extensively described because it's sort of off stage of the business of the story. Uh, but the the idea is that it's a it's a kind of like utopian socialism that has actually worked. Um, and uh, one in which um, artificial intelligence has managed to um, uh, create a functioning, centrally planned economy in a way that uh, was not possible in the you know socialist experiments, state socialist experiments of the 20th century. Um, uh, and uh, you know, it, it it may or may not be very likely. Uh, uh, but I think it's a. I think people have talked about this idea, and I think it's a sort of a fun thing to explore. And it's just a fun, I don't know, and a healthy inversion, I think, to imagine. You know, in this book and in um, Tropic of Kansas, you know, one of the fundamental uh, thematic things I'm trying to do is sort of the the look at America as kind of the third world, as it were, to use that uh, uh, kind of obsolete term. But, um, and, uh, and uh, the, uh, uh, the superiority of China is a sort of very useful way to kind of bring that idea right front and center in a way without having to be too, uh, 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 I don't know, hammering and expository Mm -hmm. about it. And, um, and uh, and using that kind of utopian socialist idea, the idea that, oh, maybe, you know, could that possibly work um, uh, is a fun way to uh, uh, paint a contrast with what's a sort of an extreme depiction in a way of like a, a society uh, uh, in which um, a kind of kleptocratic capital has kind of run amok. Uh, and uh, left huge pockets of poverty and, like, you know, domestic environmental crisis and refugees, petrochemical Chernobyl <laughs> wastelands and whatever. 
the Wild yeah. West individuality, each for his own versus like yeah. the fair allocation of yeah. resources. And uh, I know we've often had this discussion at home about AI, uh, which I'm not a, a huge AI fan, but on the other hand, an AI is not going to want a dacha for his relatives and an AI is not going to, you know, wish to give a lucrative contract to his nephew. So maybe things could be more fair under an AI with proper input. Never know. Yeah, I mean, I mean, for Donnie and the story is kind of a grass is greener thing, right? Mm-hmm. And his his girlfriend is somebody who's, uh, you know, uh, she's very entranced by uh, these, uh, you know, the theories that are being implemented by uh, the Chinese and by others. Donnie is kind of always a, a, a skeptic who has a very deeply cynical view of human nature. But, but yeah, it's kind of fun to explore those possibilities. <laughs> and I don't know. I mean, you look at, like, real life. I mean, like, you know, there's a very large portion of life that is, like, centrally planned by, you know, people at Apple and Google. Yes. Uh, and, uh, you know, I mean, like, you really kind of think about the, the, the kind of the mental landscape of our lives and how much that is managed by a very small group of people. Uh, I don't know. I mean, big data has the potential to do that. And it's kind of happening in China, I guess, in a way, to a certain extent. I mean, in terms of trying to really centrally control all of that kind of activity through the state rather than through a corporation. So who knows? Who knows? Well, are you working on a new novel now? I am. The Rule of Capture uh, was part of a, a two-book deal with uh, Harper uh, for, um, you know, two novels featuring the same uh, character, Donnie Chemo. And so the new one uh, is scheduled for release next summer that I'm currently revising diligently to turn in here after the new year is called uh, Failed State. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Taking Great. that. Uh, uh, but the idea is it's trying, I'm trying to, I'm trying to get to a more utopian endpoint, which has kind of really been the purpose of all of these books is, you know, is like to kind of look at the problematic things to try to find, uh, you know, the way to the, you know, uh, what an authentically better future might look like. And failed state is essentially uh, wherein rule of capture, Donnie is defending political dissidents being held in front of uh, the tribunals of basically like a domestic version of the Guantanamo courts. Mm-hmm. Uh, in failed state, he is defending people who are being hauled in front of post-revolutionary uh, uh, justice tribunals, kind of truth and reconciliation tribunals. So kind of turning that on its head uh, uh, with people who are trying to uh, define uh, a, a new kind of idea of environmental justice, um, kind of touching on a lot of ideas that have been kind of lurking around in the back corners of the uh, jurisprudence and ecology for a long time about things like the idea that like, you know, do trees have rights, you know, stuff like that. So, uh, but trying to kind of play with those ideas and, uh, and a hopefully pretty compelling, uh, and even more kind of post-colonial, um, uh, setting and one in which that, that thing we were talking about earlier about the beauty of the post-apocalyptic vision of like the beauty of seeing a building being reclaimed by nature, um, is kind of really front and center. Well, we look forward to that book coming out, and thanks so much for taking time out of your day to talk with us today. Thank you so much for having me, Gabrielle. It was really a blast talking with you. It was. Thanks for listening to us today on the New Books Network Fantasy and Adventure Channel. I've been talking with Christopher Brown about Rule of Capture. You can follow Christopher on Twitter at capital N capital B underscore Chris or visit his website ChristopherBrown.com. He's also got links to Instagram and Facebook on his website. Join me in January when I talk with Priya Sharma, an acclaimed short story writer, about her first novel, Orma's Shadow. I'm your host, Gabrielle Matthew, author of the YA fantasy, Girl of Fire. 
Curious? Check out the Girl of Fire book trailer on YouTube. You can find out more about my work at GabrielleMassey.com. You can also follow me on Twitter to get updates about new podcasts and more. At Gabrielle.author and my name is spelled G-A-B-R-I-E-L-L-E. Tune in in January for my interview with Priya.